God, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, I'm Andy Sherson, a church planter up North Phoenix area called Desert Ridge, a church we named Desert Ridge Church because we are creative with titles. Um, Chuck called me on or texted me on Tuesday saying he had COVID and asked me to preach. And uh, this will be my sixth COVID pinch hit, although it sounds like it's not COVID. So praise God for that. Um, so I'm glad to be here. Chuck has been a good friend to me as I uh, started serving here in the Valley through Gospel Coalition and Simeon Trust. So there's a lot of affection towards him, towards your elders and the, and the team here who, who help uh, equip pastors to, to preach the word. And so it's an honor to be here to open God's word. Uh, I didn't expect to have to come in right when Jesus went to the cross, uh, but such is the way the schedule worked. Um, but I mean, where else would you rather preach? So we're gonna do it. Uh, I've titled this sermon, Mockery and Majesty. We're in Mark 15, verses 16 through 32. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read the passage for us. Mark 15, verses 16 through 32. It looks like it's also on the screens. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. So we, uh, we have three boys, and they're starting to get to the age where we're showing them more theatrical type movies. And uh, I grew up loving Star Wars, and so I was trying to figure out, like, how do you expose your kids to Star Wars? Do you start with one? Do you start with four? We have like nine plus extras. Like, where do I start? Um, and they, I, I was, just in case you're wondering, there are many theories on this. Uh, and I'm not going to bug you with the theories because I actually stumbled onto something better, which was 
parents who film their kids while watching Star Wars and post them online, they called reaction videos. The best comes from The Empire Strikes Back. Now, I must warn you, I'm about to spoil this movie. So if you have kids you want to cover their ears, I understand. If you yourself, as an adult, do not know what I'm about to spoil, this is not on me. All right, you've had 42 years, or however many you've been on the earth, to figure this one out, okay? So, Empire Strikes Back, you guys are with me? Okay. Uh, Vader and Skywalker are fighting with the swords, and lightsabers, sorry. Uh, gets to this climactic point, and Luke cries out, you killed my father, and Vader says, no, Luke, I am your father. And the kids' faces just, like, utter shock, right? Their response has revealed their heart. They, in their hearts, cannot believe this is happening. Their hearts are revealed by their response to the truth. And friends, what I want to put forth to you this morning is that what is happening here in Mark 15 is the hearts of people are on display based on their response to the truth of the king. So just in case you fall asleep, here's my sermon in a sentence. Jesus is the king that no one expected, and the way you respond to this unexpected king reveals your heart. Jesus is the king no one expected, and the way you respond to him reveals your heart your heart. The passage is organized quite neatly with two locations. So join me as we go through these locations. The first is the palace, verses 16 through 20. This isn't a new location. Eric, who was here with you last week, told you about the trial that had happened in this location. Well, the trial is set, and now the execution is growing near. And in this location and in the second location, you're going to notice, perhaps you noticed when I was reading, that Mark uses a lot of repetition in these verses. The first repetition I want you to see is the repeated use, and they. It's done over and over and over again. And the soldiers led him. And they called. And they clothed. And they were striking and when they had mocked, and they compelled, and they crucified, over and over and over, they, whoever they are in that particular verse, are doing things. And Jesus, who I think would be the main character, seems to be doing nothing. Mark is doing something very specific with that repetition. He's showing you that even though they think they're in control, that something bigger is happening with this king. Jesus is at the mercy of Rome now. He has placed himself there willingly. But there is no mercy from Rome, only cruelty and mockery. This repetition of and they shows just how cruel and mocking they are. Rome has no interest in treating their enemies with respect. Jesus has been condemned for this trumped-up charge of king of the Jews. He is king of the Jews. He's not trying to overthrow Rome, as the charges would have you think. But Rome has no care in this. They simply want to put away any sort of rebellion. 
And so, Mark does something for us here with the literature. He uses irony. Not the type of irony from that Alanis Morissette song, which ironically is not ironic. This is true irony. It is a literary technique that Mark uses to show what Jesus truly is, even though the people doing it do not understand. The irony is they are treating him as a king to mock, even though he is the real king. They surround him. They clothe him with a purple cloak. They twist together a crown of thorns. They worship him in verse 19. They strike his head with the reed that was probably his scepter when they first started this play. Their mockery at his majesty is Mark's way of ironically saying, oh, this is the true king. Because Mark is doing another thing here too. Mark is pointing back to Psalm 22. The way Mark describes this passage sounds an awful lot like David, who in Psalm 22 is surrounded by his enemies. The true anointed king is surrounded by enemies and crying out to God to deliver him. And Mark, throughout this chapter, points back to Psalm 22 again and again. What he's doing is he's saying, remember when David did this. Perhaps you have that type of relationship. Perhaps you have a friend that will, will remind you of a truth by saying, remember when. I have a good pastor friend. About a year and a half ago, we hiked the Grand Canyon. We went down to the river and back up. And anytime things start getting hard, he always says the same thing. Andy, remember when we were on the last two miles? If you just remember that, you'll understand what's going on now. Just push through. Mark's doing something very similar here. He's quoting Psalm 22. He's pointing the readers back to Psalm 22 to say, remember when this happened to David, that is happening to Jesus here. In Psalm 22:16 it says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. I count All my bones, they stare and gloat over me. Just like the enemies surrounded the true king, David, and he cried out, here the enemies surround Jesus. But he doesn't cry out. Jesus is living the experience of David. The enemies surround the true anointed king, only to mock him. The cruelty is the point. Because Rome has no interest in mercy. They already had an opinion about Jesus. They already had a thought about who this Jesus is. I listened to a couple Mark sermons as I was preparing this week to come here. And Chuck had a big question. Do you guys remember that, the, what the question that Mark is constantly asking? Anybody? There, I heard somebody. Who is this Jesus? He's doing the same thing here. Perhaps the question here is slightly different. Who is this 
King Jesus. Because he's not the king that they expected. He's not the king that the world would look for. So the truth is, everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Just this week, Elon Musk, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, he offered a sentiment saying, I like this Jesus guy. Turn the other cheek has been really helpful. I noticed that Elon did not include the crown of thorns or the spitting or the cross because everyone has an opinion about Jesus. It's been happening for centuries. The question when the reader comes to Mark 15 isn't, do you like some parts of this Jesus? The question is, will this Jesus be your king? And that's the question for you and for me today. Because that's the other repeated line throughout these verses. The king of the Jews. The power of Rome sees this as a weak king and a suffering king. The Jews reject him because he's not the king that they want. But he came to be a suffering and serving king. Because another thing that Mark is doing here is he's showing you that he is the one who's promised, but he's a king who comes to serve. Isaiah 50 talks about this servant who would come, who would restore God's people, and in Isaiah 56 says that they would spit on him just as they spat on him here. Mark is weaving together a tapestry of Old Testament Passages pointing to who the Messiah, the King, the true person, man sent by God would be. The question is, how will they respond to this King? How will they respond to the suffering King? Because the suffering King is not the one who is expected. And we'll see that not just here at the palace, but when we move to the second location called Golgotha. In verses 21 through 32, he ends up at Golgotha. The location has changed, but the repetitions remain. We still have the repetition of and they or and them. And with this, we also have even more mention of the king of the Jews. And just for a second, notice the simplicity of Mark's account. And you've been in Mark longer than I have. You know that Mark is a succinct writer. He does not waste very many words in this passage. He gets straight to the point that the king must be on the cross. Notice also that Mark spares the bloody details. A different movie came out also a little while ago called The Passion of the Christ, where Mel Gibson wanted to really display what happened to Jesus. You can see it in all its blood and gore and pain, and there is a certain emotion that comes from that. But why doesn't Mark include it? They, they slammed thorns upon the Savior's head, and not a drop of blood is mentioned. We have to go to John to know that they nailed him to the cross. Mark doesn't include that. Why is there no blood or gore here? It's because Mark is not concerned with primarily what is physically going on. He's concerned with who Jesus is and why he is there on the cross. 
Yes, crosses are terrible. We know that. Crosses are a symbol of Rome's power. We know that. But this cross is different. This is the king's cross. This is where Jesus promised he would be. His crime on the sign, king of the Jews. They, hang, they put him on the tree because of this potential insurrection, the threat to Caesar's rule. They put him on a cross between two criminals. The passage calls them robbers. Robbery is not a capital punishment for Rome. There's a Jewish historian, a man named Josephus, who describes insurrectionists with the same Greek term that is here used for robber, which means that Jesus is hanging between two men who actually tried to do what he is accused of doing. They are like Barabbas, who was just released last week, that Barabbas deserved that center cross, but Jesus took it. And if he's our king, then we have to realize that we deserve that cross, and he took it. And you would think, after all this buildup throughout the gospel, Jesus telling people who he is, and then saying, hey, well, don't tell anyone yet, that maybe now they would finally get it. Ah, this is what Jesus has been doing the whole time. But they don't. Because everyone in this scene misses who Jesus is. In verse 24, the soldiers take a final action. And once again, quoting Psalm 22, Mark tells us that they divide his garments. His last remaining possessions. This is not a king that is going to a tomb full of treasures. This is a different type of king who hangs on a cross. The soldiers thought this was a weak king. Just another failure against Rome. This is the type of person today who sees Jesus as having maybe a little bit of value, but not quite enough to change how they live. Just a weak king. Not enough value there for me. One of the things as a church planter is I, I go out and I meet neighbors and I try to share the gospel. And I was talking to one neighbor uh, the other day, it was a couple months ago. Jehovah's Witnesses had come to their house and they were complaining to me because, well, I'm religious, I guess. And uh, I, I was asking him, I was like, well, what, what, was your, what was your thought on them? And he said, I'll tell you what I told them. Leave me alone. I'm happy in my hedonism. At least he's honest. But that's sort of the attitude here of the soldiers. This guy's nothing. He doesn't offer me enough to change anything in my life. Maybe you've stumbled in here this morning thinking, oh, let's see if there's anything to this Jesus. Don't be like these soldiers. Because as much as my neighbor will tell you he loves his hedonism, I can tell you there's never enough. He always needs something more. But this king offers everything you need if you'll give up what you think you need. The soldiers saw him as a weak king, but they weren't the only ones to respond to this king on a cross. The passerbys 
They wag their heads. We have a two-year-old who, when he gets really involved in his two-year-oldness, he won't talk to you. He'll only can communicate with head nods. And when you're trying to get him to something and all he gives you is the wag, you know things are bad. He is, he is vehemently against you. The wag of the head. Wouldn't you know it, the spectators who walk by see the king on the cross, they wag their head and say, he was going to do great things. He was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Look at him. He doesn't do quite enough. These are the, the people who quite possibly hailed his entry into Jerusalem, that this is the Messiah who's come, who will save us from Rome. And now he hangs on a Roman cross. They wanted a, a, a return of the kingdom. But they wanted a king much more like Saul than like David. They wanted a king who would rule with power, who had stature and strength and might, who would scare the other kings. He promised to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, and now he is on a cross. Now, clearly they've missed the point because Jesus told them, I'm talking about my body. He is doing the very thing he promised, but they miss it because he's not strong enough. He's not impressive enough. But friends, the Christian life is not about our strength. It's about the strength of our King who delivers us. Because they had a lot of kings like Saul that came after David and Solomon. And let me tell you, it didn't get very much better. They needed the king who was on the cross, but they rejected him because he wasn't powerful enough. The chief priests offer their thoughts too. They, like every single one before them, choose mockery instead of majesty. They mock him saying, he saved others but cannot save himself. They wanted the new king who would establish Jerusalem and let them rule. They wanted to define how Jesus would work. And friends, that's how religion works for us today, too. I'm going to make the rules instead of listening to your reign so that what I say matters. You can miss Jesus by following the rules. You can miss Jesus by knowing all the verses. You only come to Christ if he is your king. So let him reign instead of making your rules come first. And then finally, even the criminals mock him. Mark doesn't tell us what they mock him about. But it would seem like the mockery has to do with the fact that Jesus is just like them. What type of king hangs on a cross? Like a couple troublemakers. But that is the beauty of this king. The beauty of this king is that he is one of us. Right? We're entering into this Advent season where we celebrate the Incarnation, and the point is that He is one of us who can hang on a tree. That Jesus did come, became flesh, so that He could be this type of King. 
The question for us is, will we trust the king that God appointed, even with when, what it lines up, when it doesn't line up with what we expected? This isn't what the people expected, but this was the king that God appointed. Maybe you're thinking, God, I, I expected a, a better job by now, but you've appointed me to linger in this one. God, I expected a spouse by now, but I am appointed to singleness. I expected to know my path by now. I expected retirement to be easier. So what will you do when, when God, what God appointed doesn't line up with what you expected? Will you be disappointed? Will you wag your head? Or will you trust the king that God appointed? Because this is who Jesus came to be. This is what Jesus came to do. The chief priests and scribes, they knew the scriptures. They should have known Psalm 22. Beyond that, they should have known that this was the suffering servant, that this was the Messiah who would come, who would give his back to be struck, it says in Isaiah 50, verse 6, who hid not his face. Perhaps the servant that is described in 53.7, afflicted but did not open his mouth. He was mocked and beaten and crucified. And all through these verses, other people are active and Jesus seems passive. But he's not passive. He's doing the very thing he came to do, which is to be the serving who suffers. Isaiah 53.12 says he is numbered with the transgressors. How much more can you be numbered with the transgressors than to hang on a cross between two of them. Mark 10, 45, Jesus just tells the people who he is and what he came to do. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. If they knew the Old Testament, if they had listened to Jesus, they wouldn't have missed it. Except for sin, because sin blinds us to the truths of God. Sin keeps us from trusting in this king, because this is the king that was appointed, even if it wasn't the king that was expected. So the question is, is this the king you want? Is this the king that you will welcome to your life to rule and reign? You can live under his reign or you can reject it. I wonder if part of the thing as Americans is we don't like rulers and things like that. And even in our political climate, it's gotten even greater, right? Not only do we not like the, the ruler, we can vote them out, but now people will say things like, that's not my president. I've seen it from many different people, surprisingly different people over the last six years. Now, they don't resign their citizenship and move to another country and embrace some new identity. They just say, this is not my president. You can say that, but the truth is, unless your actions change, it is your president. So why do I bring that up? It's because Christ as king means that we live under his reign, and you will choose whether this is your king or not. 
King Jesus requires a response. Will you happily say, rule and reign in my life, or will you reject him? Will you mock him like the soldiers, or will you marvel at the king who came and died? Will you scoff and spit as you live your life in direct opposition to what he says is best, or will you sing his praises? Praises like the dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain of his day. And there may I, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Will you revile him or will you revere him? Will you heckle him or will you hail him as true king? Will you wag your head or will you worship? That's the question that this king asks. That is the very thing Mark wants to know. Will you wag your head in derision? Or will you worship him? One of my favorite hymns brings this very truth up. It's called Hallelujah, What a Savior. It says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus is the saving king. And he didn't come down from the cross because that is the very place he went to deliver us. So if you've come here today, you don't know this Jesus. Trust in him. Because the, the, the call of, of the Pharisees, of the religious elite, if you do this, then we'll see and believe. That doesn't happen anymore. This is what we have. We have the account passed down to us to ask, will you believe? Because the next time he comes, it won't be the same. Because he did come down and he went to the tomb. But he didn't stay in the tomb. Because three days later he rose People saw, but they didn't all believe. And then he ascended to heaven, and it tells us he's going to come back. But in Revelation 6, when he comes back, the people don't believe. The people great and the people common seek to hide beneath the mountain instead of seeking to hide themselves in him. So for you today, don't wait, because there's not going to be anything to see other than this very passage that's right in front of you that says this is who King Jesus is. Trust in him. Turn from sin. Don't mock him with your life. Give him everything. Jesus died as a king to welcome you to his kingdom. Paul says that very fact. He says in Ephesians 2 that Christ brought those who were far off near by the blood, making them fellow citizens and saints. Christ brings us into his kingdom. You have a new identity, a new place under this king because he died. What Rome thought would be final defeat was Christ's great victory. The king won on that day. And for us, the question is, will you let him reign in your life?
You reign by how you respond to who he is. Just like the rest of Mark has asked the question, what will you do with this Jesus? The question today is how will you respond to this king? And I believe the call to respond is, is couched subtly in our passage. Certainly you respond with true worship instead of mocking worship. But verses 21, sorry, yeah, just verse 21 seems almost out of place. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the, from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, we don't know 100% if Simon became a Christian, though there's pretty good evidence. And Mark, who doesn't use a lot of words to tell you who his children are, it seems like people knew. If he is your king, you will be like him. If you are his king, you will be much more like Simon than anyone else. You will take up your cross and follow him. And wouldn't you know that's something that Jesus called his apostles to do here in the Gospel of Mark? That if he is your king, you will live like the king, and you will take up your cross daily and follow him. So friends, if you are here, you've given your life to King Jesus. Are you prepared to do that very thing? To carry the cross? Just like Eric mentioned last week, persecution is going to come. We don't longer live in a world or a country where the confession of the church is convenient to hold to. So will you carry the cross? Or will you become a passerby who says, Jesus just wasn't quite powerful enough for me? Because your heart is revealed in how you respond to the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the king. Not the king that anyone expected. Not the conquering king. Not the king with a great palace. But the king who died. We thank you for his cross that there, though we as vile as those robbers have all of our sins washed away because Jesus came to serve, to offer his life as a ransom for many. Help us to trust. Father, help us to worship well that our hearts will be set on our King who gave it all for us. We pray this all in his name by the Spirit's power. Amen.